Welcome to the Benefits Executive Roundtable, hosted by Dorothy Koshu, President of Advanced Benefit Consulting. Dorothy is a nationally recognized benefits and compliance consultant and group health broker. Here, you'll listen to industry experts break down the latest news and trends in employee benefits, healthcare reform, regulations and compliance, all designed to empower executive decisions. We're back again with Marcy Buckner, Senior Vice President of Government Relations at the National Association of Health Underwriters. Marcy, thanks for being here once again, and welcome. Let's get right back into the upcoming election and the candidate platforms. We'll talk a little bit about California's single-payer issues and other important legislative updates. So welcome back. Thank you. Well, let's get right back into this. Let's talk a little bit more about what Joe Biden has said he wants in health care. Can you fill us in on his likely priorities? Yes, and we talked a little bit about this in part one with his interest in upholding the ACA and then also his interest in a possible public option or even adding more people onto Medicare by lowering the age requirement. And so in his platform, which was released during the Democratic National Convention, which is tradition, we saw that he did include lowering the age for Medicare eligibility to 60. There are some talks that of whether that will be optional, whether people have to take it up at 60, whether they can wait till 65, how all of that will work. But there is an interest there to, to lower the age requirement. And when we talk about that, I'm always asked about the funding of Medicare. Right now, it is set to run out of funding in, I think, less than 20 years. So lowering the age obviously increases the cost, and that funding runs out even more rapidly. So kind of putting a concern in there, not just on all of the other issues that happen when you add people into Medicare, but even just looking at cost alone. And then the other priority will be setting up a public option. This was something that was originally included in the ACA, but was taken out through several iterations because it it was a very time-consuming process getting to the, the final bill. And so what the public option would be would be offering government negotiated rates with carriers as an option in the market. This is different than what we have with the exchanges. The exchanges are not government negotiated rates. The exchanges run alongside private private coverage and what is offered in the exchange also has to be offered off of the exchange at the same level. And so that would not be a requirement of those plans going through the public option. And again, they would be government negotiated rates. So the, the thought is that those rates would be much lower. And when we get to that point is when the concern falls that private coverage running alongside this, the prices could be so competitive that it prices the private market out of business. And then what do you do when only the public option plans are available? Does that lead to a single payer system? What happens then? Um, And so that's kind of the gateway going through public option that would take several years to get to that point, but it opens the door when we start talking about including a public option. Yeah. What about a Trump re-election? What do you see as his healthcare platform and priorities? Sure. And so President Trump did not release a platform during the Republican National Convention, which is unusual. But because we've had almost four years with President Trump, we really just look back to his track record of what we would expect to see for another four years. And then also look to 
all of these executive orders. So these have all placed kind of a roadmap for us of what we he would like to see. Of course, when it comes to the ACA, he would like to continue to try to dismantle that, which has happened through different regulations that he's released, the extension of short-term plans, although I know California acted to, to ban those entirely, the expansion of association health plans. The Trump administration has led challenges to the religious exemption for providing contraception, which was ruled on earlier in favor of the Trump administration earlier this year. So we do know that he would like to continue on that path. And then an, an area where we know they both agree, they've both campaigned on doing away with surprise billing, lowering prescription drug costs. And of course, President Trump has those executive orders that came out that give us a roadmap for that. So there are a few similarities, but that's kind of where the differences fall between uh, Biden and Trump. Okay. What are the, and I know we've talked about this a little bit already, but what are the key issues affecting the election and how did healthcare rank in their importance? Healthcare is right up there at the top. And I think especially in light of the pandemic, there is this broad concern of access to healthcare and access to health insurance, which are a little bit different there. Also, the treatment of so many essential workers for hospital systems and, and those providing care through other means. And this has just really been elevated through the pandemic. And I don't think that we're going to see any speeches from either of them that won't include something on healthcare as we're leading into November 3rd. Yeah. Well, we talked about this a little bit too. You've already mentioned this, but I want to bring it back up. Medicare for All has had a lot of support. Single payer has been discussed in many Democratic discussions. Can you explain the differences in the terminology? And you did talk about this earlier, but I want to come back to it in part one. I want to come back to it. Can you tell us a little bit more about the difference between Medicare for All, single payer, the public option? Uh, Medicare buy-ins, that sort of thing. Can you uh, fill in our listeners on, you know, what these things are and why they may not work? Yes, I did tease this a little bit when I said that we heard some terms being used interchangeably earlier in the primary season, and so universal health care, single payer, Medicare for all, Medicare buy-in, public option, all of these things are are different. And I know in California, with the recent report that came out for how UL would try to do a single-payer system, the, the new term is, is unified financing, is, is a term that's being used there for what the state is, is looking to do. So I want to make sure I'm, I'm using your terms as well. But here with universal healthcare, that just means everyone has access to healthcare. It doesn't mean everyone has healthcare or health insurance. It just means have everyone has access to be able to get health insurance. And so a little bit different than some of the other things that we'll see. Single payer is similar to how it sounds. There would be one government-run system for everything to go through. So, so no choices there. Medicare for all is different than single payer because it would provide the Medicare plans, um, the Medicare platform for everyone to enroll in. And so as those agents in Medicare know, there are private carriers that are in Medicare. So that would be different than single payer with, where we would not see the private carriers participating in a single payer system. Medicare buy-in 
is where the Medicare market is is open to different groups of different populations. There are several different bills on the Hill that open up Medicare uh, for a Medicare buy-in. Some are lowering the age where it's available to buy into Medicare uh, for those ages 50 to 64. They don't have to, but they can. Another would allow for small employers to participate in the Medicare market. So that's what a Medicare buy-in is. Medicaid buy-in is another one that you can hear. There is a bill that would allow for states to open up their Medicaid plans for different populations to determine if they want to buy into. And then we have the public option, which I described a little bit earlier with what Vice President Biden is looking at. But with the public option, again, that would be a government negotiated rates with insurance carriers that would run alongside a private market. So all all of those markets would be in existence and it would just be an option for people to enroll in, but it would be government negotiated. And again, the concern is whether the private market would be able to keep up and have any type of competition with rates that are set by the government that are operating in the same market. Yeah. And we, it, you and I talked about this in the spring when we actually had a podcast for, for Kahu, uh, I think it was in February during our capital conference. So it's, uh, it's good to hear your explanations of this and remind people about the differences and so forth, because some people are just are very confused about this and they're just not sure how to differentiate, I guess, the uh, differences in all of these. And they all, as you said before, kind of lump them all together and, and you shouldn't do that because uh, they definitely mean different things. So I'm glad you clarified that for us. There was a recent CBO report on single payer. Can you tell us more about that? Yes. And the CBO is the Congressional Budget Office. They are a bipartisan group. So it is made up of Republicans and Democrats. And they look at bills and um, determine how much a bill would cost to go in place. And they looked at the most recent Sanders Medicare for All bill. So the bill he introduced during this congressional session, which now expands not just medical, dental, prescription drugs, all of those things, um, but it also includes long-term care. And the cost for that would be $32.6 trillion over 10 years. So quite um, quite a lot of money. I think the average would be over $2,000 more in taxes for the average uh, American household. Um, obviously, that would differ depending on different things, but keeping that in mind, um, and, and that would be you know, annual increase. So every year seeing that increase. They also pointed out some other concerns other than just how much it would cost in, in taxpayer money to implement. And so other than just cost, it would also tally on longer wait times, possible shortages of healthcare providers. There's a concern that some providers may not want to work for Medicare reimbursement rates. And so we could see some physicians leaving the market, which would again lead to that the lack of physicians, longer wait times, the availability to be able to choose your doctor. If if we go to a single payer system, the CBO is warning that you know you're only going to be able to access those physicians that are participating in this. So if you have a physician that's not not going to go along with this, then you may not be able to have a large amount of choice in where you go. So we often say Medicare for all is choice for none because you will be very limited based on the CBO report and how it would impact the markets and your choice and just about everything that revolves around your health care. 
What about the states related to single payer and public options? Can you inform us a little bit about that? We always have states that are looking into this. It, um, it comes up every year. Colorado and Washington State have both passed public option bills within the past year and are in the process of trying to adapt and put those together. Washington State is having a kind of a phase-in of the public option, and they are using their state exchange to do that. And so their state exchange will have their exchange plans and then the government negotiated plans that will technically be public option plans. Their design is to phase out the exchange plan so then only the public option plans would be available on their state exchange market. Like I said, it is going to be a phase in, so it's uh, several years will, it will take to, to put that process in place. And then Colorado, I, I think, is still in the design phase of they've, they've passed this bill and now they're trying to figure out kind of what to do with it. And then New York is is another state that's very similar to California, where this is a constant conversation in their capital, and there is a representative there in the assembly that um, has introduced a single payer bill every year since he's been there since sometime in the 1990s. So he is he's really trying. But the most recent study to do a single payer system in New York would cost more than their entire annual budget for the state. So again, coming back to cost and being very prohibitive in trying to get any of these things in place. Yeah, and we're familiar with that here in California as well because of all the past and current, uh, you know, situations we've had and and, uh, discussions uh, in Sacramento about the potential for single payer. And uh, I want to talk a little bit more about California since we're here. Um, As you know, and you mentioned it earlier as well, a report was released by the Healthy California for All Commission in August, um, which CAHU, of course, has been working on. Uh, We see this as kind of a roadmap or a blueprint to our governor's future plans for single-payer health here in California. What are your thoughts on this, and what do you think our grassroots efforts should be like to combat this and make people more aware of it? This was very interesting, and I know for the Healthy California for All Commission and and other groups that have been working on this for quite some time um, in California have kind of gone back and forth on on different ways that that they're using their abilities to try to kind of market what this plan would be. And we've gone through several iterations out there where I know Governor Newsom has talked about universal health care. There were some bills on that a couple of years ago and, and using that terminology, universal health care. We've gone through some some iterations out there talking about um, using single payer as the terminology. And then like I, I referenced earlier, now the, the terminology they're using is that unified financing for and the way that system would work would be very much similar to a single payer system where it would not have private insurance um, carriers in the market. And I think with with this and, and changing that terminology where they're not saying single payer anymore, they're, they're saying unified financing, which sounds a bit different. And I think a lot of people, when they hear single payer, 
for for some, especially those in our industry, you know, that they hear on the back of their neck rises and, and they, you know, they, they start cringing. And so some of this is a little bit um, more of, of a marketing campaign to use different wording and, and try to make it appeal to those who, who may not give it a second glance if it has, you know, single payer at the top of it, but may say, hmm, what's this unified financing about? And, and this is something, I mean, NAHU does it. We talk about different things using different terms depending on the audience and who it's going to appeal to to best. So I can't I can't criticize them too much for doing this because it's something we do as well. But I think with with Kahu, your opportunities here are are to educate people and to let them know exactly what that unified financing means. And with grassroots, and I know you all have done this in the past, you're really good at doing this, getting out a campaign um, to educate using not just social media, but other ways to get advertising out and, and to make sure that people understand exactly what's happening. And then also messaging to your lawmakers in Sacramento. And again, I think because to quote President Trump, Healthcare is hard. Um, it is hard. And I think that with changing the, the terminology here and, and starting to use that unified financing, there are even going to be lawmakers, elected officials in Sacramento that, that may not understand that nuance of a change. And to them, it might look like something different that they think is very appealing when in the past they opposed a single payer system. So I think it's very important for Kahu to educate not just voters and consumers, but also those policymakers in Sacramento. So when this does get to a vote, it will probably take several years before it gets to that point, um, since this is the, the report that was released by the commission and, and not a bill that has been introduced yet. But you know it's going to be a conversation. So this is an opportunity for Kahu to get out ahead of that conversation and use their grassroots efforts to educate those policymakers um, so that they're able to ask the important questions and, and realize exactly what this is. Yeah, as a matter of fact, we did start uh, somewhat of an educational grassroots campaign. Uh, I myself wrote an article recently. Uh, we put it in our state publication called The Statement, and it's also being published uh, in the October 2020 issue of California Broker, which basically is on this topic. It talks about the attacks on the employer-based healthcare system, and it also talks quite a bit about the report, and I kind of get into detail on this and, and talk about the terminology and uh, try to educate uh, our members and other agents across the state and their employer clients on what this is all about and the differences in that terminology, because you're right, they did use a very creative way of saying single payer, which is unified financing. So we've started to do this already. We're going to continue our educational efforts. So it's good to hear that, uh, you know, people like yourselves um, think that what we're doing is going in the right direction. And we're going to definitely be talking more to you guys in, in Washington about this and make sure that, uh, you know, our campaigns are, 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 are good. And uh, I'm sure we'll be asking you for a lot of advice between now and, and the next few years if, if uh, this starts to go forward at all. So yeah, this is a campaign we're going to be working very, very hard on and, and we've already started that. So anyway, that's uh, thank you for your thoughts on that. Let's talk a little bit about, about some uh, electoral college projections. Can you break down the Democratic and Republican projections for us? Right now, the projections are, um, and, and remember, you need 270 electoral votes to win. That's the, the magic number there. And right now, 
Vice President Biden is projected to have, um, I think, around 290 electoral college votes. But I do really caution when we talk about this, especially after the 2016 election, where we saw once once again, it was definitely wasn't the first time this happened, but we saw that the the public vote and the electoral college votes were were different, where one candidate won the popular vote and the other won the electoral college vote. And then also, I'm very cautious talking about it as well, because the projections, even on the Electoral College side from 2016, were, were so off. Yeah. And so, it, you know, gives me a, a little bit of a pit in my stomach to, to try to rely on those when we talk about it for, for 2020 again. And I will, this is um, not an NEHU endorsement, but a, but a Marcy endorsement. There's a great children's book. It's called Grace for President. And I give it to all of my friends who have children. And it talks about um, this little girl who wants to run for president. And it breaks down the electoral college really, really well. So for something that can be very um, hard to discuss, it makes it very easy. So if you are having trouble talking to your children about it, I, I suggest this book. Um, <laughs> hopefully Amazon will get lots of hits for it. But because it, it, it is hard and um, and it's confusing that you vote and then there's this different group then in your state that determines how many electoral college votes are, are then going to go towards a candidate. And we've also heard a lot of discussion about the fact that some states are, are different. Some states, they are, they're kind of more like captive agents, so to speak, to use a term um, from this industry, where they, they have to vote alongside with what the popular vote is in their state versus being able to cast what they believe would be best for the state, regardless of what the outcome is from the voters there. So it, it's very difficult to talk about. And then, of course, like I said, with the projections being just vastly inaccurate from 2016, a little harder to take into consideration now. But for, for right now, when we talk about those poll, those polling, it is projected that, that Biden would have more electoral college votes than, than Trump. And again, 270 is that magic number. Yeah. And it is confusing. And I like the idea of that book. I might get that myself. (laughs) (laughs) Even I have difficulty understanding it sometimes and would like a little refresher. It's been a few years since I've been in school. Let's talk about employer issues. And we've talked about this before. You, you talked about it early on uh, in part one and so forth. Um, But I want to come back to it because it's really important to our members and their employer clients, as well as the general public. First and foremost is the employer exclusion. Let's talk about why this is important. I'm going to kind of break this down a little bit. The employer-based system has been obviously very successful, probably the most successful of all components within our healthcare system. Why is the employer exclusion so important to keep the employer-based healthcare system in place? The employer exclusion is really what drives um, the employer-based market. And we really think that without having the exclusion in place that we would see a lot of employers choose not to offer health insurance because it, it wouldn't have that that benefit to them. And it also wouldn't pass down a benefit to their employees either. And so having this employer exclusion, which allows employees to deduct from their income, the funds that employers provide to them in the form of health insurance is very important to be able to preserve. It lowers the taxable income of the employees. It it also lowers that threshold for the employers when they're doing their FICA taxes and really is, again, like I said, one of those primary motivators and, and has been in place before the employer mandate, but was really one of the primary incentives, again, for employers to, to offer coverage 
really before having the extra motivation of the employer mandate. Yeah. And tell us more about the tax treatment of employer-sponsored healthcare coverage. Sure. So right now, as I mentioned, the exclusion allows for those funds not to be taxed. So they're not taxable. And what we've seen over the past couple of years is an increase in support to actually tax those funds that go towards health insurance and health benefits for employees. And this has been talked about in a number of different ways to either tax that amount in total or to cap the amount that would not be taxed. So capping at it like 80%. This is really an area because, because these funds aren't taxed that some members of Congress look to as a possibility of an area where they can raise taxes, try to put some money into the treasury to go towards other things. And we believe that if this goes through, we could see what could possibly be the highest increase in taxes for middle-class Americans that we've seen in quite some time. And so that's why we really talk about this almost anytime we're meeting with a member of Congress and talking about employer-sponsored coverage, because if this is taxed, we do believe again, like I said, that we would see employers that don't have the incentive to provide this and and possibly see, like I mentioned, um, a huge increase in taxes for for those that have employer-sponsored coverage. Yeah, and and I agree with you. That's something that we definitely have to try to keep in place because obviously, um, you know, a lot of a lot of people are insured through employer-sponsored health coverage throughout the country, of course. Another employer issue is, and you mentioned this earlier as well, the employer reporting under the ACA, and we said we would come back to this. What are the priorities of NAHU here, and what would NAHU like to see? So I I talked about this in the frame of COVID-19 and the difficulties in compliance, but I think we all know that even when we don't have a pandemic, it's still very difficult to comply with employer reporting under the, the ACA with the employer mandate. And so a bill that we have been working on with one of our coalitions, the Partnership for Employer-Sponsored Coverage, is to allow for employer reporting to go through a system where employers are reporting on a prospective basis. So they're reporting at the beginning of the year what they will be offering instead of going back and explaining at the end of the year with all of those look back periods and, and all of that other nice, what we like to call fancy math of trying to calculate all of those things. And, and it would be much easier. Our bill does allow for those who really like the current system. I mean, we know there are a handful of those out there to be able to continue under the current system, but, but this bill would, would allow for that prospective system to be an option as well. And then, <laughs> there are actually, there are actually people that think this is a good thing and actually like it, huh? I'm kind of surprised by that. Right, right. I guess that's true. It's it's difficult. Yeah, it's very difficult. Yeah. (laughs) There's there's something for everyone, I guess. And then um and then in addition to just even the timing of reporting and and when it's done and, and how it's done, the what, the what of what is being collected is also changes under our bill. We know that there are a lot of duplicate filings between the employee, employer, and carrier with employer reporting. But then also there are some data points that are required that aren't aren't needed. Things like um, having to provide dependent social security numbers, even if they're not on that employer plan. And so 
we just think that is just more of an administrative burden for employers. It's not necessary for them to be collecting those. And so trying to ease some of those requirements um, are, is also included in the bill. Yeah, I agree with you wholeheartedly on that. And since I'm a HIPAA privacy and security consultant, and I deal with a lot of confidential information, anytime you're putting out information on you know, social security numbers for your uh, dependents and so forth, people get a little nervous about that. So I would definitely mm-hmm. like to see that go away as well. I think it's unnecessary myself personally. And again, that's the opinion of Dorothy, not the, necessarily the opinion of the California Association of Health Underwriters. So I guess I want to make that clear. Um, what about COBRA? We talked about COBRA a little bit earlier, but let's come back to it. And, and can you fill our listeners in about the treatment of Medicare um, and COBRA together? Yes. And, and we've recently had a win on this in Congress. So I'm always happy to talk about those, um, those things. And right now under Medicare, if you age into Medicare, um, you turn 65, and for some reason you're on COBRA and you don't enroll in Medicare, when you do finally switch over to Medicare, you're penalized 10% for life. That stays with you forever. And we believe that COBRA is technically employer-sponsored coverage, and employer-sponsored coverage is technically treated as creditable coverage under Medicare. So we think that COBRA should should also be treated as creditable coverage, and you shouldn't be penalized once you go over on, onto Medicare. So the bill that we're working on would allow for a one-time special enrollment period where someone could go from COBRA onto Medicare without being penalized. And Oftentimes people ask, well, why would someone stay on COBRA and not go on to Medicare? There are a number of reasons. They may have met their deductible for the year, and so they want to stay on that plan in through the end of the year before switching over to Medicare. They may have a spouse that's also on their employer-sponsored plan, and so going on to COBRA makes more sense for them. They may be in the middle of some very serious medical treatment and want to make sure they can at least continue or complete whatever that treatment is before switching plans and possibly having to, to switch providers. So there are a number of reasons why someone might might choose to stay on COBRA instead of going on to Medicare. But we think that going on to Medicare and getting your welcome to Medicare package, and it comes with an extra 10% penalty, it's just really unfair for these people who may not even realize that they're doing something that would incur this extra penalty for life. Yeah, agreed. Agreed 100%. Let's talk a little bit about balanced billing or surprise billing. Um, obviously, this topic has made a lot of headlines. What's being done here? You talked about it earlier, but we said we would come back to it. What's being done here to help policymakers in coming up with potential solutions? Yes. And so in part, when I talked about the executive order that just came out asking Congress to act by January 1 to do something to prohibit balance billing, and then asking if if nothing is done by Congress for them, for Secretary Azar then to take action in some type of rulemaking from HHS. And we have seen a lot of action on this over the past couple of years, and especially in this congressional session, we were really lined up to see something going to the House and Senate floors for the summer, and then COVID hit, and it really shut everything down when it came to discussion on balanced billing. There were also, we know, some discussions and possibly trying to get balanced billing into a phase four COVID bill, but because Congress couldn't even decide what would be in the phase four COVID bill, they they stopped short of, of trying to add this in, and which would have been an, an extra, um, definitely an extra measure that would have been argued over. And the, the two pieces here that are talked about as possible solutions 
are using a fair market median rate versus arbitration. And using the fair market median rate would require providers who are out of network, it would put a, a, a limit um, on how much they could charge um, for out of network services. And that limit would be based on um, kind of a benchmarking system, what the fair market median rate, what the fair market value is for that type of service in that type of geographic area, or well, that geographic area for that type of healthcare provider. And that would be the limit of what could be charged for out-of-network services. The, the other proposal is to use arbitration to determine what is fair to be charged for an out-of-network procedure. And our concern with arbitration, where we've seen some states taking this on and, and using the arbitration method, is that it does add um, kind of another layer of bureaucracy to try to resolve the surprise bill. And then also, we've seen premiums actually rise and costs rise to be able to pay for the arbitration system. An extra concern there is that in self-funded groups, the cost of arbitration would be on the employer. And so with that, we know whenever charges are passed on to the employer, they're passed down to the health insurance consumer in the, the form of increased premiums. So we don't want to trade banning surprise billing. We don't want to turn that in and get higher premiums in return. We'd like to see premiums stabilized and have a ban on surprise billing, which is something that can be done through using that fair market median rate. And then when we look into the, the calendar and kind of the timeline for all of this, in light of the executive order asking for action by January 1, we're at the end of September, beginning of October, going into the election on November 3rd. They only have a handful of quote unquote working days um, where, which really means days that they're able to go to the floor and vote. They're of course working um, all of the time. And so they only have a handful of days where they are, are eligible to go to the floor and vote before November 3rd. And then when they come back, we'll be in the lame duck session. And I think the ability for them to act on this could be impaired if we see there will be a potential for a change in power for, for the parties in the next congressional session, if the majority switches there um, in, in power for the House and Senate, you know, people get very spiteful when we get into lame ducks. And if they know that they're losing power, sometimes they hold off on, on pushing something through or, or they, they shove something through to make the, the next Congress have to deal with the repercussions afterwards. So, and this is definitely one of the issues that I think kind of has a, a big red flag on it for potential to be used in that manner. And I, and I will say that Senator Alexander, who is retiring after this year, he has said that this is his legacy issue. He would like to see something done on this. So it'll, it'll also be interesting to see if his fellow um, senators will rally around him and try to get this done for him before he retires. But that just kind of adds a kind of another unique lens to, to look at this through. There were some IRS rules proposed for direct primary care arrangements and healthcare sharing ministries. Can you fill us in? Yes. So there was a proposed rule that we um, NAHU recently commented on that would allow for the use of HRAs and possibly HSAs to pay for direct primary care 
and for membership in the healthcare sharing ministries. And I'm being careful to use membership for the healthcare sharing ministries because it is not traditional health insurance, it's not major medical, and the HRA and HSA funds must be used on medical care. So I'm being very careful in how I'm, I'm, I'm terming that. But we did hear from from many of our members across the country, specifically on that direct primary care piece. And many of you called me or or sent me emails and and said that this would be really a huge benefit to your clients if they were able to use those funds to pay for direct primary care. And so there is a hearing in October that we have submitted one of our members to testify that is going through this, this rule and the comments that were provided. And so we are really looking forward to providing testimony on this and hoping that we can get this into law to really help out some of those folks to be able to use their funds towards this. Okay. Thank you. The Trump administration released proposed rules on grandfather plans under the ACA. What's this all about and what's the latest on this? This affected grandfathered plans for group plans, allowing allowing for a little bit more flexibility in some of the things that they could change without altering their grandfathered plan status. And this is, again, even though it seems very minor, it's another way of chipping away at the ACA and some of the restrictions there. There were a lot of restrictions on what grandfathered plans could do before they would lose their grandfathered plan status. So those those plans that were in place before the ACA and are not ACA compliant, but allowed to continue on until they change so drastically that they lose that status. And so this allowed for a little bit more wiggle room for those plans to stay in place, which um, I think at this point um, in 2020, it was not something that was expected um, by the Obama administration that those plans would even still be around. So Definitely another way that this is kind of taking on doing away with the implementation of the ACA. Lastly, I know we've covered a lot of stuff here. So uh, one last thing. We talked about it earlier, but I just kind of want to wrap up this and and end on this because it it is an important uh, case. An important Supreme Court ruling obviously is hanging over everyone's heads with the Texas v. United States case. Can you fill us in? You talked about it earlier. Uh, Can you tell us a little bit more about what it's all about and the expected timing on this? Yes, and and I talked about this briefly when talking about the the pre-existing condition executive order that was recently released. And again, the Texas v. United States case is that case that's challenging the individual mandate and then the, the constitutionality as the ACA as a whole. And in December of 2017, in the budget bill that they that Congress passed um, during that congressional session, they zeroed out the individual mandate penalty. And when that happened, a challenge came up in the courts, and they said that if you look back at previous Supreme Court rulings that upheld the individual mandate, it was upheld because it was a tax, and the argument was that it wasn't a true mandate. A true mandate would be unconstitutional, but because this was a tax, it was able to be deemed constitutional. And now that the tax is zero, the argument is that this makes it a true mandate because no funds are being levied by a tax. And so if it is a true mandate, then the argument is is unconstitutional. And then the argument continues that if this piece is unconstitutional, then the entire ACA is unconstitutional. And this has made its way up to the Supreme Court. Oral arguments are scheduled for November 10th. 
so a week after the election. And we are not expecting a final decision on this until June of 2021. So that's oftentimes the timing after the Supreme Court hears cases, and then they release all of their opinions over a few weeks during the the following summer. And the premise here has changed a little bit on what we are expecting because of the passing of Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg, who in the past has voted in favor of upholding the ACA and some of those previous challenges that we saw. And so the expectation was that we were probably going to see a 5-4 decision on the Texas v. U.S. case. Now there's kind of a big question mark on that, a larger question mark than I had before on how this is going to kind of shake out. And obviously others are thinking this as well for President Trump to have released an executive order saying that if the ACA is deemed unconstitutional by the Supreme Court, that he wants to continue on with pre-existing conditions. So for him to release that executive order, he thinks that this is a possibility that could happen. And especially knowing that Ginsburg's vote will not be present. Also looking at this, looking at it in light of having an empty seat on the bench, when we talk about Supreme Court justices and the the confirmation process, it is very political, but I'm going to take the politics out of it and just look at the timing. It usually takes around 70 days, that's the average, for confirming a Supreme Court justice. And when we look at the calendar and look at 70 days, it is not likely it's going to be very hard for the Senate to be able to confirm a Supreme Court justice before that November 10th date. And so if they're not able to do that, which, again, just looking at the timing, it would be very hard, especially considering that during this time frame, we also have the election. And- just that little just that little thing, the election. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Just that little thing. Yeah. Um, 35 senators are up for re-election this year, 23 of them being Republicans, That and they would need every Republican vote to to confirm a, a possible Supreme Court nominee. So trying to, to fit the nomination process and confirmation process in while all of this, these other pieces are moving around on the schedule. Again, just looking at the calendar, very unlikely. So it raises the concern that this will be heard by an eight bench court. And so others are looking at past rulings from some of the other Supreme Court justices, such as Roberts and Kavanaugh, where in the past they have ruled, because the, the question is, if, if the individual mandate is unconstitutional, can you take it out and let the rest of the ACA stand? And, and that's called severability. Can you take the bad piece away, you know, cut off the bad part of the avocado and can you eat the rest? And Roberts and Kavanaugh in the past have ruled in favor of severability, of being able to say there's this one bad piece in the law, but that doesn't mean the whole law has to go away. We can kind of quilt this together. And so they, they have ruled in favor of that in the past but not when it comes to the ACA and healthcare, which as we all know, becomes very, very political. So unfortunately, I have more questions than than answers on this right now, but we will stay tuned to see how the oral arguments shake out on November 10th, what questions the justices ask during that time, and then look to um, that opinion coming out in June. Well, it's going to be interesting to see what happens for sure. I want to thank you, Marcy, for all the valuable information you provided as always. And I want to say thank you also to NAHU for all of your efforts in preserving the employer-based healthcare system. And of course, all your legislative and regulatory efforts continuously in Washington. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you so much. <laughs> oh, you're welcome. And to everyone out there, please stay safe, stay healthy, and uh, just hang in there with us and we'll try to keep you as updated as we can. Thanks a lot. 
Thanks for listening. This podcast is produced by Advanced Benefit Consulting, Anaheim, California. With permission, this podcast has been edited from its original version for use by the California Association of Health Underwriters. All views expressed are those of the host or interviewees and not necessarily those of Advanced Benefit Consulting. Information contained herein should not be construed as legal advice. We always recommend that you consult with your legal counsel as situations do vary. CAHU members are encouraged to visit the California Association of Health Underwriters website at kahu.org for more information and updates.